Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Amen. Okay. Church, have you been enjoying our series through Paul's letter to the Philippians? It doesn't sound like it. Okay. All right. That's better. Very good. That was like a wake up check this morning. Um, Well, if you would, please open your Bibles, uh, fire up your Bible apps, turn to scroll to Philippians chapter four. I'm going to be speaking to you from verses one through nine this morning. Church, hear now the words of the one true and living God. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Church, this is the word of the Lord. How many of us recognize that sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the big picture. You know what I mean? Um, Sometimes you get so focused on the details, right, Uh, the trees, that you kind of lose sight of the big picture, the forest. So we've been, you know, in the trees for a number of weeks now in this letter. And so I just want us to kind of like pause for the cause for just a moment, zoom out, and try to kind of like recapture a picture of the forest. Can we do that? Great. I'm glad you're on board. Um, Based upon everything that Paul has said up to this point in this brief letter, we can kind of draw out the circumstances of the letter. We can draw out on the concerns that Paul has that's motivating him writing this letter to them. And the first concern that he has is persecution. So the the church in Philippi uh, is facing tremendous persecution. Uh, It is facing hardship. Many of the believers in this young church, early church, are facing persecution and hardship and danger because their allegiance is to the Lord Jesus and not to the Lord Caesar. Second, um, this church is facing a measure of discord. It's contending with disunity. Um, And so despite Paul's clear love Uh, for them and his praise for their faith and faithfulness. In the letter, he does seem concerned that their unity has been compromised. So evidently, some of the believers in this church have been pursuing their own interests, pursuing their own agendas. And it's possible that this young church is on the verge of schism. And so Paul is writing because he wants their fellowship to cohere and not to fracture. But finally, uh, Paul is also concerned about the very real threat of false teachers. He, he is in prison and probably in Rome, and Epaphroditus um, comes to minister to him and bring him an offering of support and updates him on the condition of the church and tells him, hey, like there are wolves circling the flock trying to make their way in um, and introduce false teaching, false teachers uh, bringing false Gospels. So that's what is motivating Paul as he writes this letter. And so I think that we could just really, at a high level, summarize the movement of the letter in this way. Here's a picture of the forest. Are you ready? 
Paul opens this letter and he tells them simply, put the gospel first. Whatever you do, put the gospel first. And then he moves from there and he tells them, adopt Christ's mindset. Make his mind your mind. And then from Christ's example, Paul moves to encourage them to imitate proven leaders, worthy leaders. And from there, he encourages them to beware of false leaders and to beware of false gospels. So at a high level, that's where we've come in this letter. And that brings us to our passage this morning. And Paul is essentially going to wrap things up at this point. We're going to finish this letter next week. And so here's his final major thought in this letter. Are you ready? Never give up. Never give up your Christian walk. So keeping that idea in mind, never give up, I think that we, th- we see three aspects of the Christian life uh, in this passage this morning. Uh, we see the Christian's posture, we see the Christian's practice, and we see the Christian's promise. So first, I want us to look at the Christian's posture. How many of us recognize um, that the Christian life requires a certain attitude? certain mindset, certain posture, right? A certain stance. And so Paul wants to encourage this posture in the Philippians as he closes this letter. And friends, we need to adopt this same posture for ourselves as Christians today. So he opens, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. There's a lot going on just in verse 1. Paul's words here uh, in verse 1 accomplish several purposes. Um, First, in verse 1, Paul looks backwards. Uh, Notice that he begins with the word, therefore. That's a conclusion indicator. And so he's looking back to what he's just said to them. He's saying, hey, having said all that, uh, I I now want to say this. So looking back to chapter 3, Paul has just set before the church two examples and two ends. He's juxtaposed for them destruction and glory. So in the previous paragraph at the end of chapter 3, Paul says that there are two types of outcomes in life and there are two types of people. So on the one hand, Paul says in verse 17, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And then he continues, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so here Paul appeals to his example and to Timothy and to Epaphroditus and to men Uh, And even women like them who are walking after Jesus, who are hoping in Jesus, who are waiting for Jesus. And he says, their end is to be transformed by his power. On the other hand, Paul holds up for them the many that he refers to. Who he says, I have often told you about, and now even tell you with tears, these many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul says their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So then there are these many who walk as enemies of Christ, who worship the things of this world, who are driven by their passions, who, Paul says, they glory in what is shameful. He says their end is destruction. So in this verse, when Paul says, therefore, he's drawing upon that distinction. He's calling back into the immediacy of their minds this contrast in anticipation of the exhortation that he now has for them. And given the stark nature of that contrast, this exhortation must be important. Can we see that? But before Paul gets to that exhortation, he does something very personal. And I think that uh, this is something we could just like easily read right past as we're kind of devotionally working our way through this letter. Um, And this is something that he does that I think really reveals 
the kind of pastor that he is and the kind of uh, Christian man that he is. And that is that he reveals his heart. You guys know that I love sports analogies. Um, if you've ever watched baseball, you know that every pitcher has a windup, right? Um, that's the motions that uh, every pitcher goes through that are necessary for him to deliver an effective pitch, right? So he takes a step back. He kind of puts the ball and the glove, you know, above his head. He lifts his hand over his head. Then he lunges forward with all of his might, you know, before he releases the ball, before he throws the ball. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes we kind of go through conversational wind-ups, um, especially when we want to convey something that's really important. Uh, I do this with my kids all the time, every day. <laughs> uh, I prepare to tell them something really important by first telling them other things, like how important they are to me or how much I love them or both. So here's a good example. Um, just about every night, right, babe, uh, with our son, Zachary, I say to Zachary, my son, my only son who I love and in whom I'm well pleased. I love you so much. You are a good son. I'm very proud of you. But you need to eat your dinner. <laughs> right? So that's like a conversational wind-up. Look at how Paul addresses the Philippians here. He says, my brothers, or brothers and sisters, those I love, those I long for, my joy my crown, my beloved. For those of us who can do high-order math quickly, that's six terms of endearment. Again, what Paul has to say to them must be important. But not only that, clearly it's also an exhortation that's very much from his heart. And so having said these things, he finally exhorts them. And what is his exhortation? He says, stand Firm. Stand firm. And this is his final charge to them in this letter. We could put an exclamation point on these two words. Stand firm. In the Greek, it's in the imperative mood. The word that Paul uses here literally means uh, to stand still. To be firmly fixed in place like a stake in the ground. Spiritually, to be firmly committed in conviction, in belief, and in behavior. A couple months ago, some of my buddies here and I, we went on a camping trip. Dean led that camping trip. He did a great job, brother. So we went out to the high desert, and we set up camp, and we did lots of guy stuff. It was fun. Beautiful day. Sunset. Dean grilled up some steaks. Finally, we went to bed. So, you know, as I was setting up my tent earlier in the day, I got my tent off Amazon. I thought it was a nice tent. Came with really flimsy stakes. So, you know, I'm just kind of like pushing those stakes into the ground. Bob Miller comes to me. Some of you know Bob, <clears throat> a man's man. He's like, Mike, those stakes aren't going to work. Let me give you some real stakes. So he gives me these big, hefty, like REI stakes. You know, I got to pound them into the ground with a mallet. I'm like, man, this seems like overkill. <clears throat> well, it turns out about 12 a.m., 1 a.m., we get hit with 50, 60 mile an hour winds out there in the desert, right? I mean, like, our tents are leaning. My tent's getting pelted with desert sand. The tumbleweeds are going by just like the movies. I'm not even exaggerating. My other buddy, Derek, was, you know, camping out in the safety of the bed of his truck. You know, he, he told me the next day about 3 a.m., he woke up, kind of peeked out of, you know, his safe refuge and said, Mike, your tent was just, like, leaning like this. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. I had the right tools. My tent was staked in place. And so when those winds came and when that sand was blowing, you know what? It may have bent, but it didn't break. It was stable. Paul is talking here about spiritual stability. Let me tell you something. If you are going to live the Christian life for real, then you have got to stand firm. You have to stand firm when the storms come. You have to stand firm when temptation presses in on you. You have to stand firm when persecution comes your way. 
You have to stand firm when you're tempted to compromise on the truth of God's word. You have to stand firm when your life is hit by injury or tragedy. When it's cut by the pain of loss. Paul uses a lot of military language uh, in this letter, much more than we realize as modern English readers. And that's probably because uh, Philippi was a place where there were a lot of Roman military personnel and ex-military personnel. And so undoubtedly, many of the people who converted to Christ in Philippi and were in this church um, formed a certain constituency of ex-military people. And so when Paul uses this particular word to stand firm, he's actually calling a military imagery. And it's very likely that the idea that he's conveying um, here is that of soldiers in the front lines. Just like soldiers in the front lines, believers are commanded to hold position while under attack. We're not to retreat or collapse in the face of persecution. When the temptation to compromise advances towards us threateningly. We're not to abandon our position when tested. We're certainly not to surrender to the enemies of temptation and sin. You see, no matter what comes at you as a Christian, you've got to stand firm. You've got to be firmly committed. Committed in conviction. Steadfast in belief and in behavior. And so that is Paul's loving command in this passage, to stand firm. But we also need to take note of how Paul qualifies this command. Look at his full statement. He says, stand firm thus in the Lord. Two vital observations here. First, Paul says, stand firm thus. Thus is an important word. Uh, Thus meaning like this or in this way, in this manner. Here's how you do it. In other words, there's this one central overriding predominant command here that Paul is going to unpack through the remaining verses of this passage. So so everything that's going to follow in verses 2 through 9 are essentially Paul telling the Philippians what it means, what it looks like to stand firm. Stand firm thus. But second, Paul doesn't just say we stand firm He says we stand firm in the Lord. In the Lord. He uses this phrase quite a bit in this letter and in all of his letters. In this letter, for example, he speaks of being confident in the Lord. He speaks of hope in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. He talks about receiving one another in the Lord. He says stand firm in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. What does it mean? It means that Jesus, our Lord, um, is both the source and the object of all of these actions. Um, In other words, uh, I draw my confidence from the Lord. He is the source of my confidence. I have my hope in the Lord. He is the object of my hope. I trust in the Lord. My security comes from him. We receive one another in the name of the Lord because we are all new in the Lord. We stand firm in the Lord in this passage. We are to agree in the Lord in this passage. Three times Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Draw your joy from him. You see, how many of us would agree that not one nanosecond of the Christian life can be lived on our own strength. Amen? You feel me, Andre? Amen. We stand firm in the Lord by finding our strength in the Lord, by continuing firmly planted in relationship with this same Lord who's coming, we eagerly await, and who, as we just read, will then subject all things to himself. Amen? We stand firm in the Lord because we know he is the Lord. Therefore, he is in control. He upholds all things by the word of his power. It's by his authority that we can even stand. And he never leads us to a place that we cannot stand with him. Amen? So church, we must stand firm in the Lord. And so now we turn our attention to the Christian's practice. The Christian's practice. That is, 
those actions and behaviors through which we as Christians can stand firm in the Lord. So first, we stand firm through unity. Look at verses 2 through 3. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So, Yodia and Syntyche, those are fresh names, uh, they were two prominent women in the church at Philippi who weren't getting along. Uh, They were at odds, you know. In in modern uh, parlance, we might say they were salty, right? So, what does Paul say to them? What does Paul say to them? He says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, I just want us to take a moment to see Paul's pastoral genius and sensitivity in addressing their conflict in the way that he does. Again, let's kind of zoom out and think about the big picture about how how this all goes down, right? Um, Paul's not writing this letter in Philippi. He's in prison somewhere else. Epaphroditus comes to visit him, brings news evidently of this conflict. And so what happens? Paul dictates this letter. And then he sends it with Epaphroditus back to Philippi. And so when Epaphroditus returns to Philippi, evidently when that church gathered for worship on the Lord's Day, just like we're gathered for worship on the Lord's Day, Paul's letter was read aloud for the whole church, this letter that we're studying right now. So I want you to see, everyone hears Paul name names, right? Everybody hears him name names. So on the one hand, this is kind of a savage move by Paul, right? Because he totally puts these two ladies on blast in front of the congregation. You with me? But on the other hand, I want us to see how Paul is both gentle and strategic in how he goes about it. So Paul is gentle in in that he doesn't command them with an authoritarian voice. He doesn't kind of speak down to them with a condescending tone. He doesn't, as we might say, just lay the smack down on them, right? He doesn't identify them as his subordinates. On the contrary, he affirms them. He affirms these two ladies as, quote, his fellow workers who labored side by side with him, right? Whose names are in the book of life. He doesn't say, I command you. I demand you, I order you, but I entreat. So we don't really use this word as modern English speakers, entreat. But the Greek word behind it um, conveys a sense of polite but urgent encouragement. And so here Paul is just kind of salting his words with grace. But Paul is also strategic in having their names read aloud here at the end of the letter because he's already laid out all the necessary theological and therefore practical pastoral groundwork, not just to deal with their conflict, but any conflict. So you don't don't see him open old wounds. He doesn't adjudicate the details. He doesn't get into the weeds of who did what or who is right and who is wrong. She said, she said. He doesn't say, Oh, ladies, look at how your petty disagreement has metastasized into this great big cancer in the church body. Because he doesn't have to. He's already said everything necessary to change not just theirs, but everyone's perspective. And also, he doesn't have to say these things because he's less concerned with resolving their specific dispute. And he's more concerned with resolving the effect of their dispute which is disunity or dissension in the church. you with me? So think again about how this is all playing out, right, as the letter is read aloud. We go back to chapter 2, and somebody, probably Epaphroditus, is sitting there reading the letter, and he's saying to the congregation, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right? And then, 
And then Epaphroditus is reading. What does Paul do next? He appeals to the examples of himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus, worthy leaders to emulate. And then as we rehearsed just a little bit ago, right, um, he, he appeals to the negative examples of those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, who have their minds set on earthly things, whose end will be destruction. And of course, he references their citizenship in heaven, i.e. that they serve Jesus, who is really Lord, whom from they await their glorious transformation. So there they all are. They're sitting in a house, you know, or in a synagogue, or maybe in a renovated, abandoned, you know, old Hermosa Beach bowling alley like us, right? They're all gathered together, and as his letter is read aloud, Paul just kind of masterfully leads them up to this place where they're just utterly disarmed, they're gently humbled, right? And all he has to do is simply say, I entreat Iodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. We're, we're all to have the same mindset. We're all to adopt the mind of Christ. We're all on the same team. We all have the same king. Let's get along. So here's the most important point in verses 2 through 3. You see, when Paul calls these women to agree, he uses the same word that he's used repeatedly throughout the letter to be of the same mind. Going back again to chapter 2, he says to the church, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and again of one mind. Are you with me? In other words, have the mind of Christ. Adopt for yourselves the mindset of Jesus. Bring your outlook in line with his outlook. Jesus was more concerned with our benefit and with obedience to his father than he was with exploiting his privileges that were available to him in virtue of being God in the flesh. Jesus' race was a race to the bottom. His posture was a posture of humility. His vocation was service. And this is why Paul calls them to agree in the Lord. Because he's saying, you are both in Christ. Therefore, be at peace with one another. This goes so far beyond settle your disagreement, right? Um, This goes to the very heart of what it means to live as a Christian, To live as a Christian is to live with the mind of Christ. To relate as Christians is to share the mind of Christ. We're to agree in the Lord because we are equally submitted to the Lord. Amen? Amen. We're under his authority. We're citizens of his kingdom. And therefore, we are to be at peace with one another because we serve the prince of peace. Paul's gentle correction here serves as a callback to his words in chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Hope Chapel, may this be true of us, amen? May this be true of our fellowship. But next, Paul speaks of standing firm through rejoicing. Verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Okay, so sometimes I think that it's helpful to just kind of state the obvious. Are you with me? Rejoicing is the expression of joy. Rejoicing is the expression of joy. Now, I want us to think for just a moment about happiness. We say things like, I'm happy in my marriage. Or, I'm happy in my job. Or, I'm really happy with my house. Right? So on and so forth. You with me? Um, So our sense of happiness is generally tied to our circumstances. When our circumstances are favorable, we're happy. But when something in our life is threatened or even worse, collapses, our happiness collapses with it, right? But joy, joy is different. 
And there are at least four truths about rejoicing and therefore about joy that we should take from Paul's words in verse 4. And the first truth is that rejoicing is commanded twice. Rejoice, I will say it again, rejoice. So Paul's statement is an imperative. It's a command. I think, like, when we really think about that, at first glance, it seems counterintuitive, right? Because somebody can't just kind of command you to be happy, right? You can't, like, truth be told, let's all be honest, you can't just always, don't worry, be happy, right? You know? Oh, hey, I've got stage four cancer. Oh, don't worry, be happy. Okay, right? Like, that doesn't always work. So here is where it's crucial for us to recognize the difference between happiness and joy. You see, because joy is commanded, we can deduce that it is therefore not a feeling that comes and goes like happiness. Whereas happiness depends upon what happens to us, joy has its basis in our conviction about what has happened for us. In other words, we rejoice because of what God has accomplished for us through the work of his son. Joy grows out of the conviction that no matter what our circumstances, God is in control and he will save those of us who belong to his son. And speaking of circumstances, think of Paul's circumstances. He's writing these words, rejoice in the Lord, always I say it again, rejoice. He's in chains, right? He's in prison. His enemies are after him. His reputation is being assaulted by his opponents. His circumstances challenge him, and yet he says over and over in this letter, I rejoice. Which leads to the next truth about rejoicing, that rejoicing is contingent. Notice that Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. You see, Christian joy is contingent. It depends upon the gracious and merciful intervention of God in salvation. You can't truly rejoice without Christ's work applied to your life. It is only through, it is only through the cleansing blood of Jesus shed for lost sinners that men and women can actually be made clean before a holy God. It's only through the regeneration of dead hearts that the sinner can be taken from death to life and made a saint. A dead heart can't have joy of the Lord. Only a new heart can have the joy of the Lord. It's only the sinner who has been made a saint, only the guilty who has been forgiven, only the lost who has been found, only the one who has received grace and mercy through the Lord that can rejoice in the Lord. So joy is contingent upon Christ's work applied to your life. But third, rejoicing is continuous. Paul says rejoice in the Lord when? When? Always. You see, because true joy does not depend upon our circumstances, but on the permanent presence of our Lord with us, we can therefore have permanent joy. So Christian joy is not like this manufactured, continuous smile, right? No, my joy as a Christian is a deep and abiding satisfaction in what my Lord has done for me, what he has secured for me. That he has bound me with his cords of love and will hold me tight, right? Because Christian joy has its basis in the finished work of Christ and the transforming power of his spirit and the promise of future glory with him, because joy grows out of trust in the sovereign living God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Christian joy is therefore always available to us, even and especially in difficult times. Because joy is always available to us, we can always be rejoicing. And because the Lord is always with us, we can always be rejoicing. And because his faithfulness is never ceasing, our rejoicing can be never ending. That is Paul's point. Therefore, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. 
But finally, rejoicing is contagious. You know what? When you rejoice, I rejoice. When three of us rejoice, nine of us rejoice. Christian joy has this curious propensity to spread among God's people like holy wildfire. When Christians are faithful to Scripture's command to rejoice. Why? Why rejoice, church? I think that there's no better place to look than what Paul says in Romans 8. Why rejoice? Look what he says. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Fast forward a little bit. He says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that, my friends, is our reason to rejoice in the Lord always. Amen? Amen. Next, we stand firm through gentleness. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So Paul kind of like holds up and he commends this quality of reasonableness um, as the quality that God's people are to demonstrate Not only to each other, but especially to the surrounding non-believing world. Now, like, I was trying to dig into this, you know, and I discovered that the Greek word that Paul uses here is kind of elusive. So, like, if we take a bunch of our English words and kind of mash them together, then we can kind of capture a sense of what this word means. The Christian ought to be considerate, patient, gracious, Uh, forbearing is a good word. Uh, the best word is gentle. There are elements of uh, you know, mercy and compassion mixed in. But Paul uses this same word somewhere else uh, to describe Jesus. He describes Jesus as the one who shows meekness and gentleness. There's the word. Jesus describes himself this way, right? He says in Matthew 11, Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So Paul is saying that this kind of patient, forbearing gentleness should be the look and feel of the Christian individually, but also of the church corporately. Um, This is the look and feel of Jesus And so we should have his look and feel also as individual believers and as a group of believers. Um, Why should we look like the Lord? Look what he says next. He says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. This is, or the Lord is near. Um, And this is true, I think, in two senses. First, the Lord is near to us. Uh, Psalm 145.18 says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, right? So the truth of this psalm is true for us through Jesus. When we call on the Lord in truth, when we call upon the name of the Son, he promises that he will be with us always, even to the end of the age. But at the same time, Paul probably also means that the Lord is returning soon. He's probably echoing the words uh, of the prophets. Zephaniah says, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. So remember, this church is facing persecution, right? Um, So Paul is saying, not only is the Lord near to you with his presence and through his spirit, uh, not only is he near to you in prayer, but his return is near, so you can persevere, right? Uh, Since your present suffering is at the hands of those who insist that Caesar is Lord, uh, I'm going to remind you that Jesus is Lord and that he's near and that he's returning soon. And so though persecuted, you will be vindicated when he comes back. And so uh, this is in God's timing, and it's not far far off for all of us, church, but The Lord's nearness in his presence with us, in his nearness in terms of his return to us, should give us confidence to persevere through whatever opposition 
we face. Amen? And it's precisely the Lord's nearness that animates Paul's next encouragement, which is to stand firm through prayer. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. <clears throat> Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Good. <laughs> How many of us would agree that anxiety has the capacity or potential to paralyze us, to incapacitate us? <clears throat> anxiety has the potential to incapacitate us spiritually, emotionally, mentally, even physically. So the root idea of this verb that Paul uses, to be anxious, the root idea that's captured by this verb here, are you ready for this? Is to be pulled apart. Okay, to be pulled apart, to be anxious, to be pulled apart. <clears throat> In the group of words that this verb belongs to, they overlap very closely with the English word care, care. Think about this. We care so much about so many cares, don't we? We care so much about so many cares. And when we're anxious, we're pulled apart by our cares. One commentator that I read wrote that the cares of this world are anxious, harassing cares. And I think, truth be told, there's not one of us here who has not experienced being pulled apart by cares. If we're honest, the question is not so much if we have been pulled apart by cares, but which cares we have been pulled apart by. I often find myself anxious about my kids, about their safety, about their futures. But Jesus says, do not be anxious. Jesus says, do not be anxious. And here Paul likewise says, do not be anxious. They don't mean be free of all cares. They do mean that we're not to be pulled apart by them. And for the Christian, the cares of this world are to be gradually displaced by the cares of the kingdom. As we grow in Christ, we should be increasingly preoccupied, preoccupied with Christ's business. We should grow in concern for the things with which he is concerned. And unlike Paul's opponents who walked as enemies of the cross of Christ, we must not have our minds set on earthly things, but on heavenly things. Now notice, notice that Paul uses, now I'm going to use kind of a sexy term here. You ready? He uses universal quantifiers in this statement. Universal quantifiers. Anything, everything, he says. Anything, everything. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. Now I'm going to boil all those words down to you, for you to two words. Do you have your pens ready? Yes. Are you ready? Yes. No exceptions. No exceptions. As we read Paul's words here, as we think about Jesus' words, which is driving them, I want us to understand that we should not receive these words as guilt-inducing, but as liberating. Amen. These words are liberating. Amen. And remember, Paul's not being glib here. He's in prison, right? His future, his life hangs precariously in the balance, and yet he writes to them, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. This means do not be pulled apart by your cares for your health, for your family, or your friends, or your finances, or your purpose or your education, or your troubles, or your dreams, or your hopes, or your future, or your safety, 
or your stuff or your job. No. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. But he doesn't stop here without offering a remedy for this pulling apart, which is inevitable for all of us, right? He continues, but in everything. What does Paul say we're to do in everything? What does he say? He says, let your requests be made known to God. Okay, I'm going to boil those words down to two words for you. You ready? Have your pens handy still? Full disclosure. We come to God in a spirit of full disclosure. But how do we make our requests known to God? By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Supplication is a form of prayer. It's earnest prayer. It's a form of urgent request. It can also be urgent intercession for someone else. And so we have prayer and thanksgiving, which Paul pushes forward and brings together as God's antidote for anxiety. In prayer, we surrender our cares to God and we trust him with the outcome. In thanksgiving, we express our conviction that God is good and therefore to be trusted with our cares and their outcomes. And the product of prayer is peace. He says next, stand firm through peace. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, prayer and peace go hand in hand. The Bible understands the reality that our lives are tossed to and fro by care, right? Concern is unavoidable. One commentator said, but it's given a new orientation in the gospel. Liberation comes from cares as one casts cares upon God, not because God will grant every wish, but because prayer grants freedom from care. Prayer grants freedom from care. Because in prayer, we're taking those anxious, harassing cares, and we're laying them at the feet of the God who is in control, the God who is good, the God we can trust. And as we lay our cares and concerns and requests at the feet of our Heavenly Father, He gives us what? What does He give us? Peace. No. Perfect peace. He gives us perfect peace. How do we stand firm in the Lord? We give our cares to the Lord. And in exchange, through his word, he has put himself under obligation to give us a peace that is a protecting peace, a peace that is supernatural, a peace that can only be experienced in and through Christ, a perfect peace. Finally, Paul says we stand firm through virtue. I'm going to read these verses quickly. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is Honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen to me, practice these things. Now I'm telling you, we could do a whole sermon just on these verses. But I know I've already spoken for a long time. So I just want to point out one thing. All, Paul begins with truth. All truth belongs to God. All truth is his truth. You hear people say, like, oh, that's my truth. Uh-uh. There's only one truth, and that's God's truth. And your experience either aligns with his truth or it doesn't. And so it follows that everything honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy, have meaning and intelligibility only in relation to him. So not only should his people reflect virtues which have their basis in him, But when we turn our attention to living virtuous lives which reflect God's character, our hearts and minds are preoccupied in a constructive direction and less prone to being pulled apart by the cares of this world so we can stand firm. And Paul's speaking as one who himself has modeled these, so we know that it's possible. This is not just theoretical or conceptual. And so he simply concludes, practice these things things. Finally, church, the Christian's promise. The Christian's promise, and this is the promise which undergirds, which sustains the Christian's posture and practice. Paul just ends like this. He says, 
and the God of peace will be with you. And so Paul concludes by turning our attention from the peace of God to the God of peace. He concludes by turning our attention from the thing that God gives to us to the one who gives the thing. And I want to quickly reread this verse in its entirety, verse 9. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I want radical focus for just 30 more seconds. I think that we can easily misread this verse in this way. If you practice these things, then the God of peace will be with you. As though we have to earn God's presence or merit it through our performance and good works. But there's no conditional construction in the Greek. There's no if-then. Rather, I think Paul is saying, be practicing these things. Be standing firm. Oh, and by the way, the God who gives you peace will be with you. This is an encouragement. We could boil it all down this way. Standing firm in the Lord always means standing firm with the Lord. And this is a precious promise for the Christian. My friend, no matter what the circumstance, if you are in Christ, then God is with you. He is with you now. And He will be with you tomorrow. And He will be with you the next day. And He will never leave you or forsake you. Why? Because you are His forever. Why? Because Jesus, like we sang, is a friend of sinners. Jesus, friend of sinners, loved me ere I knew him, drew me with his cords of love, tightly bound me to him, round my heart still closely twined, the ties that none can sever. For I am his and he is mine forever and forever. Not death, nor life, nor anything can ever separate me. A love that will not let me go. Yes, I am his forever. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which instructs us, which builds us up. Jesus, we thank you for your love, which does not let us go. We take the next few moments to remember your love and the work that was motivated by your love. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.